And, you know, I'm never surprised. I already heard from a couple people first service, you know, this point stuck out to me and this point stuck out to me. And, and God's always speaking to us individually where we are at. So I'm so grateful for that. A little bit of background on uh, Colossians is actually one of the epistles that was written from prison while Paul was in prison in Rome. And um, it's Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon were all written from prison. And I think that is um, significant. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. The point of the chapter, the summary of the teaching, if you will, today, is that there's nothing that we can add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we can add. There's no way to make it better. There's no way to be more saved or more holy apart from the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Or in other words, if you have Jesus, you have everything. If you have Jesus, you have everything. And something else to look out for if you're a really good student, if you're a thinker, uh, and you're kind of, um, well, here's the point. You and I, we're going to fall into one of three categories, or we're going to be inclined one of three ways, or maybe all three (laughs) at some point. But we are um, inclined to add to the work of Jesus or try to be more holy one of three ways. There's legalism which is kind of self-explanatory, right? Legalism, hold to the law, put laws on myself, uh, go back to Judaism, all that stuff. There's mysticism, right? Oh, you know, I, when I pray and I have to have the certain lighting and I see God in the clouds and there's that tendency that some of us have. Or asceticism, which is, you know, holier than thou. You know, I don't, I don't even watch TV. I don't even own a television. As a matter of fact, I ripped the radio out of my car, which is not good because then you can't listen to God's Way Radio, 104.7 FM, also godswayradio.com. <laughs> but in all seriousness, you know, we, we can have that tendency to say, oh, I don't do this and I don't do that, and therefore I'm so much more holier than you. And so we have these tendencies. And so as you're listening today, you might find, oh, that kind of sounds like me. That kind of sounds like what I do. And then we will know what to guard against, right? We know, you know what? I tend to be legalistic. I need to really guard heavily against that. Or I tend to be ascetic. You know, I tend to be like a monk. And, oh, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't go to birthday parties. There's too much singing there. And, Dude, go to a birthday party, you know? Like, and, and you'll learn what to guard against and what to be on the lookout for. So just something to keep in mind as we jump in. And the last thing, this verse, uh, I thought of this verse over and over again as I was preparing. It's John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and then they may have it more abundantly. And we know that verse, right? If you're familiar with that verse, we understand it in the context of sin, right? Sin and the temptations and and, and the devil wants to steal and kill and to destroy. But these heresies, these false teachings, these uh, uh, false, uh, well, yeah, teachings, uh, doctrines, they also want to do the same thing, right? Jesus wants to give you peace. They want to rob you of your peace. Jesus wants to give you joy. They want to steal all the joy away. And you're constantly guilty because you can't keep the law and you're not holy enough. They want to steal, kill, and destroy that confidence and that relationship you have with Jesus. So I just constantly had that in my mind as I was reading through this chapter. Let's jump in here in uh, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. For as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, 
and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And um, we're going to keep reading a little bit because I think that's a mistake I made in first service. I got bogged down. Let's keep reading. Now, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power." Going back to verse 1, we'll stop there about halfway through the chapter. It seems that at this time, Paul had not yet visited the church in Colossae or the church in Laodicea. They'd never seen him before. They'd never met him in person. Laodicea was a very large and important city. On the other hand, Colossae was a very small and insignificant city. They're pretty near each other geographically. We even read in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. Now, when this epistle, referring to the epistle uh, that we're reading now, Colossians, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So there was a letter sent to each church. They were supposed to read them and then kind of exchange letters and, and read each other's letters as well. So these churches have a very, had a very close relationship. And the reason that I wanted to emphasize that Paul wrote this from prison. The reason that we take note that Paul had never seen these people before is because there's a theme that's going to carry out through the whole chapter here. And it's this idea that you see over and over that the people that are going to try to manipulate you, are going to try to cheat you, are going to try to con you, are going to try to deceive you, they're going to have to work hard to exert a lot of influence over you. They're going to have to yell very loudly or they're going to have to use very persuasive words excuse me, or they're going to have to do some very elaborate con artist trick. They're going to have to work hard to exert their influence over you. Someone who's praying for you, someone who truly loves you, someone who has been brought by God into your life, they're not going to do that. They're going to plead with you. They're going to ask you. They're going to love you. They're going to show you the Bible. They're going to plead with you. They're not going to try to force and, 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 and muscle you into anything spiritually or otherwise. And so that's something to look out for. That's a very basic, a very um, 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 initial red flag, right? You're talking to somebody and they try to sell you on something. And it's like, okay, why, why are you doing that? Right? Why do you have to sell me on this? It shouldn't be that way. So, so it's just something to look out for, and we see it right off the bat, right? He says, um, what great conflict. You look at the last verse in chapter 1, to this end I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So those Pauls in your life, the people who are truly praying for you, who truly carry you in their heart, they're going to plead with you. They're going to love you. They're not going to be forcing you or, or commanding you necessarily, <clears throat> Excuse me. And then in verse 2, we read that phrase, knit together in love. And Paul elaborates on this. He expounds on this in the next chapter, Colossians 3, 
verse 14, he says, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So knit together in love, and then he kind of defines it a little bit more in chapter three. Love is the bond of perfection. So you're knit together with the bond of perfection. I hope you see how those two thoughts go together. And if you're knit together with someone and there's a break, there's a tear, you're going to feel it, right? If you have a close relationship with someone, you're knit together and interwoven like fabric. When there's a break, when there's a tear, when there's an offense, when there's a sin, you're going to feel it. And so I challenge you, I ask you, do you have strong relationships in this church? Do you have close relationships with your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Now, you know, we have a church family, a church fellowship, other Christians, right? But the point is, do you have strong relationships with other Christians, strong relationships in your church? And again, for different reasons, we're not gonna want that or we're not gonna have that. Maybe you're new, welcome. There's people here that wanna build strong relationships with you and friendships. Maybe you're hesitant for whatever reason. Maybe you've been burned at church. Maybe you've been burned in relationships. Maybe you carry childhood trauma with you. Maybe you have trust issues. Whatever it is, there's going to be those barriers, but we have to move past that. We have to ask God to, to, to do a work in that because that's the prayer here in chapter two, that you would be knit together in love. That's God's heart for us. And so we pray to that end. Now, the good news is that fabric is, is woven up of many threads interlocked together so that they don't break easily. And again, that picture is true in the body of Christ. If you do offend someone, if somebody does hurt you, it should be based on the love of God and there should be a relationship of forgiveness and reconciliation and love and serving one another. It's gonna be okay because Jesus is there in the middle of it. So don't be afraid to build those friendships and those relationships that God wants us to have. He also mentions there um, in verse uh, 2, the mystery of God. And, and if you're taking notes, this is actually the third mystery that Paul mentions in this section, starting in chapter 1. He talks about the church as, as the body of Christ, the mystery of the church as the body of Christ in chapter 1, verses 24 to 26. He talks about the mystery of the indwelling Christ or Christ in you, the hope of glory in chapter one, verse 27. And then here he talks about the revealed Jesus, the treasury of all knowledge and wisdom. The mystery of the revealed Jesus in whom is all knowledge and wisdom. And in this chapter and in most of the New Testament, when you see that word mystery, it doesn't mean this hidden thing that you're never going to find out. Ha, ha, ha. That's not what the Bible means when it says mystery, when God says mystery. It means this thing that God has been preparing since before time that used to be a mystery that is now revealed in Christ, right? That's usually what that word mystery means. And we're going to see that more and more as we go through the chapter. That's actually what God is teaching against. That is, that's exactly what Paul is addressing in this chapter. He's addressing... The fact that some people were saying, oh, there's mysteries and there's secrets and you don't really know. And if you were more, uh, you know, ascetic or more mystical or if you held to the law more, then you would really be a super good, awesome, real Christian. That's what they're writing against. No, if somebody talks like that, you don't have to listen to them. They're wrong. Um, and that's exactly, I, that, that's a summary of the chapter in, in my own words. 
But in verse 3, you know, it's amazing. Uh, you're going to probably hear a lot today. I, I love biblical languages. I kind of nerd out on Greek and Hebrew and, and some of this stuff, and I just really enjoy it and love it. And that, that's, you're going to hear a lot of that today. And in verse 3, when he says, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, is this word apocryphos, apocryphos. And this is what a commentator Barclay had to say. His very use of that word is a blow aimed at the Gnostics. Gnostics believe that a great mass of elaborate knowledge was necessary for salvation. That knowledge they set down in their books, which they called apocryphos because they were barred to the ordinary man. So Paul uses this word that for Gnostics, these were some of the people trying to deceive Christians and teach wrong things. For them, it meant these secret books that you're not allowed to read until you get to level 10. And Paul says... Actually, that word means the things that Jesus has that he will freely give to you. Bam, Gnostics, right? Like, it's such an awesome play on words, right? These things that are hidden in Jesus are hidden in Jesus, and once you're in Jesus, they're no longer hidden. They're now there for you to discover and grow in and learn and share and enjoy. And so it's just an awesome play on words. David uh, Guzik, Pastor David Guzik puts it this way. Paul wanted all to know that real wisdom was not hidden in secret books, but deposited in Jesus Christ so that all can access it. We're going to mention a lot of I'm gonna, you're going to hear me mention a lot of modern-day current, whether heresies or deceits or things that people are trying to pull over your eye or push on you. I think it's very interesting, right, to, to start off with a home run here. That word apocryphos or apocryphos, it kind of sounds like the word apocrypha. And the word apocrypha is a title given to books that are included in the Catholic Bible and some other traditions that are not holy scripture but are stuck in some bibles anyway to confuse people and that teach things that are not in line with the rest of the bible and so i just think it's really interesting that the gnostics that god was addressing in the time the new testament was written called their hidden secret books that god said are bad apocryphos and now there's a whole other section of christians that call their books apocrypha and they're trying to say it's legit but it's not. So it's just like a really like historical irony here um, that they would choose that name and whoever chose that is kind of silly, but apocrypha. Uh, it's, it's just an interesting use of the word. So again, people are going to try to tell you, well, it says that in this book and this book, um, but it's, it's in the apocrypha and it's not in, in the Protestant canon in the Bible that, that we have here. Um, in verse four, he, he talks uh, about persuasive words and we mentioned that already right somebody that doesn't have a relationship with you that doesn't have that love they're going to have to persuade you they're going to have to exert influence on you they're going to have to work really hard in verse five he he talks about um your good order <clears throat> the steadfastness of your faith and these are military phrases again there's this really cool study there if you want to do it but these are both military phrases and he's painting the picture here and a commentator said it this way he sees paul sees the situation of the colossians as being like that of an army under attack and affirms that their lines were unbroken and their discipline intact and their faith in christ unshaken <clears throat> and i think it's important because there's some people that don't like this language when applied to christianity they don't like militant language and military language and they want us to all just be pacifists and really peaceful. 
But the problem is that the Bible uses this, this language, right? Wage the good warfare, fight the good fight, strive. I mean, it uses language like this all throughout the Bible. And it's because we are in a literal war. We are in a spiritual war. Every day we are in a battle. And, and I thought of it this way. If somebody goes to take a swing at you and you block them, if you, if you were to see that, what does it look like? It looks like two people are fighting. It looks like they're engaged in a battle. So literally, once you defend yourself, once you try to stop that attack, you are engaged in a battle. The only way to not be engaged in this war that the Bible talks about is if you just put your hands down and let yourself get hit and let yourself get taken over and let your family be attacked and let your life be, be, be you know, destroyed. That's the only way to not be in a spiritual battle is losing and being conquered. But as soon as you fight back, as soon as you try to resist sin, as soon as you try to say no, as, as soon as you try to serve God, anything that you do in the spiritual life is warfare. It is warfare. It's, it's taking part in this spiritual battle. And, and again, I'm trying to drive this point home. Spiritual doesn't mean like not real. It just means we can't see it. I don't know if that makes sense. Or I don't know if that's kind of news to anybody. Maybe I'm the only thick one here, thick-headed person here. Uh, but, but again, it's... it's, it's it's, it's, it's just that we can't see it, but it is so real. It's as real as anything that you can taste or touch or see. All right, what does the Bible say? Uh, there's that scripture that it says, says um, the things which are not seen. All right, our faith is in the things which are not seen. So just know that we are at war. And again, I was reminded of John 10, 10. Again, we read it already. The thief has an agenda and Jesus has his will for our lives. In verses 6 and 7, which uh, awesome verses, it's the verses for our youth group, Friday nights, 7.30, established youth group, uh, if you're not aware, awesome, awesome place, awesome group. Um, but they talk about being established, and, and uh, you know, something that you can easily skip over in, in verse 6, it says, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Right? You could have put anything there. Christ Jesus, the Savior. Christ Jesus, the uh, uh, one who's better than angels. Christ Jesus, the high priest. But that's not what God had written here. Christ Jesus, the Lord. And it's so important to be reminded of that. I, I heard Pastor Joe say this. You can't call him Lord without him calling you servant. I love that. You can't call him Lord without him calling you servant. And it's a heart check. You might be like, yeah, yeah, that's good. Oh, that's really good, Pastor Joel. Awesome, awesome. But we sing, right? We're singing these songs about the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And then somebody asks you for something. And I don't do that. That's an inconvenience to me. I'm not gonna do that. It's like, but I thought you were just singing. Okay, my bad. Uh, cool. I'm confused, right? Like you can't call him Lord without him calling you servant. It's an awesome reminder. Awesome, awesome reminder. And I was reminded again, I was so blessed at the last baptism that we had here on property. You know, Pastor Zach had uh, different questions, right? Instead of why do you want to be baptized, he had us ask the first question, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords? People don't talk like that anymore, right? But we should, right? We should remind ourselves that he is the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. It is foundational to our faith to see Jesus that way. When we get to verse 7, there's this beautiful progression here, this sequence, right? We read through it. Rooted and built up in him and established. And that's what should happen in the life of a believer, right? Everybody here is in a different uh, place in their spiritual walk, in their journey, right? With the Lord, in their relationship with the Lord. Hopefully, you've all been rooted, 
right? That means to be saved, to be born again. We'll, we'll talk about that later when, when Jesus brings us from death to life. You're rooted. And then you are built up. You're growing. You're praying. You're reading the Bible. You're coming to church. And hopefully, eventually, you get this, this, uh, to this point of maturity where you're established, right? You're not perfect. You're not, now nobody can tell me what to do. No, but you arrive at this place of maturity, it's different timelines for everyone. It's different, you know, levels of maturity. Uh, but there's this place of maturity where you're established, where somebody, as we're going to continue to see here, they're going to try to deceive you. They're going to try to, you know, trick you. They're going to try to sway you, and you're established. No, you know what? That doesn't sound right. You know, I need a, you know, maybe I don't have the answer. Maybe I'm not sure what to make of this. I'll, I'll ask a pastor. I'll ask a dear sister or brother in Christ. I'll ask somebody that I know has been walking with the Lord. But I know something's up. I'm established. You know, in the words of Jesus, a house built upon the rock, right? That's what is God's heart for every believer. And again, we constantly have to remind ourselves, it's not that I have to get to level 10. No, 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 we're, we're gonna address that here in this chapter. But it's just that, that place of relationship with Jesus where you're established and he's in you and working in you. Another thing here, again, you know, as you read through this chapter, there's so much, there's so much. But one of the things that we can easily skip over, it says abounding, uh, what does it say, um, Abounding in it with thanksgiving. Abounding in it with thanksgiving. And that's something else that we need to be reminded of. Grateful Christians are hard to deceive. Grateful Christians are hard to deceive. Ungrateful Christians are easy targets. Grateful Christians are hard to deceive. Ungrateful Christians are easy targets. Why is that? If somebody tells you, well, you know, if you really want to know God, you have to read this book and you have to do this thing and you have to keep these laws, it'd be like, I mean, I'll look into it, but Jesus is really good. Like, he loves me. I'm really blessed. He saved me. Like, I'm, I'm kind of like have everything I need. Like, God is awesome. So God bless you, bro. Like, you're not like, oh, wait, what? Like, oh, I do need more, and it's not enough. And what Jesus has done is, not, oh, yeah, you're not going to be swayed by that because you're so grateful for what God has already done in your life. You're not an easy target. You're going to be hard to trick and to deceive. You know, or if you have resentment or you're, you're angry at someone in church or you have beef with someone in church or whatever it is, and somebody else says, oh, look over here, you're going to be more tempted to go over there because you, you have problems with these people. You don't like these people, so you're going to be more tempted to go over here. But if you're grateful, if you're settled, if you're thankful, you're going to be hard to deceive. It's an awesome thing. Thanksgiving is so important. I hope you're growing in Thanksgiving. I hope your prayers are full of Thanksgiving. Uh, it's so important. We read there in verse 8, again, just another amazing uh, word here, another beautiful uh, part of the scripture, that, that Greek word for cheat, cheat, is very interesting. It's only used this one time in the New Testament, and there's other English translations that, that help us a lot. King James says, beware lest anyone spoil you. New Living Translation says, beware lest anyone capture you. NIV and ESV says, beware lest anyone takes you captive. Spoil, captive, those, those are better English words here. And essentially what it means is, beware lest anyone conquer you and steal what you have. Beware lest anyone defeat you in battle and walk away with your treasure. Defeat you in battle and steal all that you have. That's the, the emphasis. That's the thought here. Through philosophy and the deceit, the traditions of men, the basic principles of the world as, as we read already. So be aware of that, right? This is not, so much is at stake here. 
You know, I, I've, and, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. We'll, we'll look at it. But whatever thing it is, right, this, no specific examples come into mind. So, so I'll skip trying to think of it on the spot and mess up. But whatever deceit, whatever doctrine, whatever new idea, philosophy, uh, going back to the old thing or that thing or keeping this law, whatever it is, it's not a little thing. We're going to see later that it's, it's taking us away from Jesus. And so if we start to give in to this little thing over here, the aim of that deceit, the aim of that uh, distraction, division, is to rob us of all that we have over here in the grace of God and in, in, in the fellowship of, of God and in, in the church that he has us in, in the community he has us in. It's to take us away from that and all that away from us. So there's a lot at stake here when we talk about traditions of men and vain philosophy and all that, and we're going to get into it. I also don't want to give the word philosophy a bad rap. It literally means the, the love of wisdom, but uh, Paul and, and the Holy Spirit is using uh, the word here to talk about vain speculation, constantly philosophizing about things. You know, you might have a philosophy on parenting or a philosophy on gardening, right? It's, I'm not saying, we're not saying don't use the word philosophy, uh, but it just means vain speculation and constantly philosophizing about things and never getting to the heart of the issue. Tradition of men. Now we start to get into some of those specific things to look out for. When he, when he uses his phrase, the tradition of men, I think of when people say, well, this is how the early church did it. This is how it was done in the old days. This was how the original was done. Ah, I would start to be careful when people start to use those phrases and, and emphasize on that, right? What's the point, right? Well, why... Is it, is it not biblical, right? So for example, somebody actually texted um, the prayer line and they said, hey, I have a question. I have an honest question. Why do we do church on Sunday and not Saturday, right? That's a, that's a great question, right? The Sabbath, and he's going to try Sabbath, uh, for Jews is Friday night when you see three stars in the sky till Saturday night when you see three stars in the sky. Um, that is the Sabbath uh, for Jews even to this day. Well, we gather on Sundays because the church in the book of Acts gathered on Sundays, it's in the Bible. They gathered on Resurrection Sunday weekly, once a week, and they also gathered in people's homes, and that's why we have more Bible studies throughout the week. And, and all of what we do, we try to take it back to the Bible. And so if they're saying, yeah, you know, there's Bible, yeah, but the early church fathers, you know, but in Jerusalem at the Second Council, okay, dude, is it in the Bible, <laughs> right? Is it in the Bible? So that traditions of men. There's a lot of church tradition that is not necessarily harmful, but if you're going to argue about it and you're going to like take me to task on it, it's, it's not in the Bible. So if you don't want to or if a church doesn't do it, that's fine because it's just a tradition of man. It's not Bible, holy scripture. So we have to be careful when people take tradition of men and want to make it holy Bible when it's not in the Bible. That phrase, basic principles of the world, uh, it's a, a Greek word that covers a range of ideas. It would have meant different things to different people reading this letter, right? So it literally just meant things in a series. So some people would have heard it and thought of the alphabet, alphabet, excuse me. Some people would have heard it and thought of like, oh, you have to arrange statues in a certain order. So people would have thought different things when he said this phrase, um, basic principles of the world. And, and God did that on purpose, right? He wanted to catch everybody's attention of the original listeners and of our ears as well. 
But it, it also brings to mind a lot of things, right? When people argue about the origins of the Bible or manuscripts, and you have to get them in the right order, and you have to get the one that is the majority text, and it can't be this one because this one's corrupted, and this one was changed, and this one... That is people arguing about basic principles of the world, vain philosophy, trying to take us away from Jesus. And, and let me clarify that. It, what I'm not saying is, oh, we don't want you to know where the Bible came from. Look over here. No, 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 no. You can study all that. I, I had a class once. I'll illustrate the point this way. I had a, uh, a New Testament class in college, and all the students were arguing, oh, oh, yeah, see, he said there's 10,000 manuscript variations, and no, 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 and oh, and there's all these arguments about the Bible. So all the students are arguing, I'm sitting there, sitting there. So I raised my hand, and I said, yeah, I said, professor, with all the manuscript variations, with all these different quote-unquote manuscripts, does it change the message of the Bible? Does it change the content of the Bible? He said, no, not at all. I said, okay, thank you. And all the students were like, oh. <laughs> like, oh, we're arguing about nothing. You know, so it's like there's a different letter or they didn't punctuate something or instead of 10,000, it says 1,000. Those are all the differences in the Bible. When people are going, ooh, the Bible's not trustworthy, they mostly don't know what they're talking about. Um, sorry, no offense if you've ever said that or if anyone watching or listening, but it, the differences are nearly insignificant. I'd encourage you to study. Study manuscript evidence. Look at where the different text uh, families come from. Look at the origins of your Bible. But when you focus on that, when you try to take some, someone away from their faith, when you try to discredit someone's faith, when you try to distract someone from loving Jesus because you want to just throw doubt and manuscripts and origins of the Bible at them, that's when you're falling into exactly what God is telling us to stay away from here. So be careful of that when people try to throw doubt and all that at you. You know, again, this is totally um, anti God, this is totally uh, sinful, but you have other things that people deal with, that people, what's the word here, entertain today, even Christians, right? Worship of nature, crystals, all this stuff, these basic principles and elements of the world. There was people like that at this time in Colossae, nature worship and dealing with all this mysticism and all this stuff. And he's saying, saying they're trying to trick you with the basic principles of the world, with the elements and with all this stuff. Don't listen to them. They're trying to trick you. They're trying to deceive you. That has no place in the life of a Christian. None at all. In verse 9, right, if you thought I was excited before, Verse 9 really gets me going. Verse 9 is awesome. Right? We read it already. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That word Godhead is theotase. It literally means the essence of God. For in him dwells the essence of God bodily. And he was addressing again certain heresies. But this is a concrete and absolute statement about the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is God, Period. I mean, there's no arguing with that. There's no way around that. There's no clause. There's no asterisk. There's no parentheses. Jesus is God, right? This was probably the most specific and eloquent and intelligent way it could have been phrased. In him dwells the entire essence of God bodily. And so the two, two of the heresies that he was dealing with in his day were, number one, that Jesus was just a really dope hologram and he didn't actually have a real body, right? They probably wouldn't use the word hologram, right? But he was some sort of ghost that looked real. That's a lie. 
Uh, the other thing was that the spirit Jesus and the physical Jesus were two different things. Super weird, also a lie. Um, Jesus is God. That's it. And again, it's so simple. It's so beautiful, right? The simplest reading of the Gospels is what we're supposed to understand. You read through the four Gospels, right? This is the biography of Jesus. The Gospels are in the literature family of biographies. You read the four biographies of Jesus, and you go, hmm, this guy is God, and this guy is a man. Okay, cool. Like, that's what we're supposed to walk away with, fully God and fully man. It doesn't have to get any more complicated than that. It's profound. We, we can study the incarnation. We can learn theology about, you know, wh what does divine essence mean? You can, you can talk about uh, the essence of God and the homoousios and all. There's beautiful things to learn and discover and rejoice in, but Jesus is God. And, and there's, there's no argument that fully God, fully man, the simplest reading of the Gospels. It's awesome. That's what God is bringing us back to here. You know, verse 10, uh, the head of all principality and power, something else to look out for. And I've talked with people even recently about this. There's still people dealing with this in Miami. There are churches in Miami trying to feed people these lies. You have to name the demon. You have to find what spirit it is. You have to do a special service. You have to use a special oil. That is not true. That is not biblical. It says here, um, you're complete in him. He's the head of all principality and power. It's talking about spiritual principalities and spiritual powers. You think you have oppression from demons or the devil? Okay, tell Lord Jesus and Lord Jesus will deal with it. You don't have to talk to demons and identify spirits. That's not biblical. That is another deceit and another lie that people will try to give you. Now again, there's so much nuance here. You know, you're in a situation and there's weird things going on. And God is trying to show you that because of the people you're with or the circumstances you're in, there is demonic activity and God wants to show you how to deal with it. Okay, demons are real. God can lead and guide you. But it's not a teaching that you abide by. It's not a, the only way to do this is name the thing and name the thing and, and you need this special power and you need this special pastor to help you. That is all deceit. That is all a lie. Demons are real. Angels are real. We talked about the spiritual warfare. All of this is real, and it all comes back to Jesus, the head over all principalities and powers. We get to, to verse 11. I think we stopped there at verse 10, so let's continue reading. In him, in Jesus, were, um, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which, is con which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. Again, same reference here, principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This idea of spiritual circumcision, it means the cutting away, the breaking of the power and influence of the carnal nature, 
right? Circumcision is that circumcision, physical circumcision, a covenant with males in Israel that they would make to God. They would have this procedure. They would have this physical uh, procedure done to them. It would be the sign of a covenant. But he's talking about spiritual circumcision. When you circumcise your heart, when you're spiritually circumcised, it means that flesh, that nature is cut away. Its power is broken. It is taken away from you. And it's the same thing when he says putting off, right? This jacket I have here on the floor in case I got too cold up here, right? I have taken it off. It's not doing anything for me. It's not keeping me warm. It has nothing to do with me. I've taken it off. I've placed it on the ground. It is put away from me. And so that's what was supposed to happen to our carnal, sinful, fleshly nature. That's what's supposed to happen in the life of a believer. And again, kind of jumping ahead here for a second, it talks about, it's going to talk about here in chapter 2, how all the Old Testament laws, feasts, celebrations, it's all a shadow of Christ. Even circumcision is a shadow, is a type. And God says it in the Old Testament, right? These things were being revealed all throughout the Bible. God is not a God... You know, kind of a tangent here. If you're in a spot where you're praying about something, this is super tangent, so maybe it's specific for someone here. You're praying about something. You're asking God about something. Be reminded, brother or sister, God is not playing keep away with you, right? He's not, you're not asking him, God, please, I need your will on this. Help me. I want to know what to do. I, I need direction in this area. He's not going, ha ha, jump over here, jump over here. Ha, gotcha, gotcha. That is not our God. Our God wants to freely give, freely speak, freely guide, love and lavish and, and show you and bring you into all that he has for your life. There's a whole other right, teaching conversation. Well, then why don't I know or why doesn't he say so yet? Just at least know, at least know the foundation of what you're going through is God wants to answer you. God wants to answer you. God desires to speak to you. Please know that. So going back here to this specific example, even in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, listen how God talks about circumcision. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So even in Deuteronomy, he's already saying, heads up here, guys, I'm not just talking about, you know, a physical procedure. This has to do with your heart and with your soul. Awesome, awesome stuff. In verse 12, uh, just they mention baptism as a picture of uh, death and resurrection. And that's why baptism by immersion is so sweet because it really paints the picture all the way. You go down in the water. We hold you there for a couple seconds. And then you come up out of the water. You're buried. And then you come up. You resurrect with Christ. It's a beautiful picture. That's why we baptize by immersion. Full dunk here at Calvary Chapel, Miami. It's a beautiful picture right here, Galatians chapter 2. And then in verse 13, you know, I talked about, um, you know, we'll talk more about being rooted in Christ, how that's the foundation, how that's where your, your life starts in Christ. You need to be rooted in Christ. We're giving it here much more plainly. He says, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. flesh. So there's two things that work against us. We are born dead. We're born dead because we're born of Adam. We're born of corrupted seed. We're born of the fallen nature. But also, really, really quickly, if you have kids, if you remember being a kid, you also learn how to sin on your own. You don't need Adam's help, right? So there is that, that, that age of accountability, that age of grace, right? We... We even recently have dealt with extended church family who have lost children. 
You know, God does not send little babies to hell. God does not allow little babies to go to hell. There's teaching in scripture about that. When David prayed to God and David was understanding where his child was, he knew he was with God. There's scripture on that. Nobody knows the exact age. Nobody can tell you an exact number, but there's scriptural teaching on that. But, but again, pretty soon you learn to sin real good. And that's why it's so important to know you have these two things working against you. The point is, we are born dead in our trespasses. And so you cannot work hard enough to be undead. You can't be good enough to not be dead. You, you have to be saved and brought to life. You have to be taken out from the dead and put into life. Even if you were the best person, even if you're here today and you're going, mm, I don't buy that, that's a little too religious, you don't know me, I'm really, really good, I never hurt nobody, you actually don't know, like I literally run a soup kitchen, I don't sleep because of how many people I help all day long, right? Let's say you're a super saint, you're just a really good dead person, and that is not going to get you into heaven, you're still dead. So you can be a really good dead person. It does not get you into heaven. We need a savior to bring us into life. And that word having forgiven, again, you know, if you, if you get to grow and study, learn to use blue letter Bible, Bible gateway commentaries, there's such cool stuff in the Bible to learn and, and love and grow and read. This word having forgiven is the word charisamenos, uh, charisamenos. And lodged right there in that word is the word grace, charis. And so he graces us with his forgiveness. His forgiveness is without favor, uh, uh, without, you can't earn his forgiveness. It's, a, it's, it's this beautiful uh, picture that this word paints. His grace, his forgiveness. Uh, there in, in verse 13, having graciously forgiven you all trespasses. All, all trespasses. If you're here today, you're dealing with guilt, you're struggling with past sins, maybe even something you did this week or whatever it is. Just know that the Bible says plainly, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is really hard to wrap your head around. That is really hard to wrap your heart around. I've been there. We've all been there. You mess up. You sincerely pray, God, I'm sorry. I can't believe I did that. How could I ever? God, forgive me. My heart is so broken. I, I, God, by your grace, I never want to do that again. God, please. You're forgiven. In the spiritual realm, in God's eyes, you have just been forgiven and cleansed. I never feel that way after that prayer, but it's true. You are forgiven and cleansed. We have guilt and feelings and shame that we have to work through and wash in the water of the word and pray and, and be encouraged. But in the spiritual realm, in truth, you are forgiven and cleansed at that moment of, of uh, when you ask for forgiveness, when you confess your sins to God and ask for forgiveness. It's an awesome thing. And I pray I could grow in that and we can grow in that. Remember the, the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. 1 Peter chapter two, verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. Man, again, I find myself rushing here at the end. So much I want to cover with you. Um, we continue reading there. Um, you know, I just want to emphasize in verse 14 and 15 
That, that phrasing there, that picture is so amazing. Jesus defeated all of these, uh, the handwriting that was against us, di- disarming the spiritual principalities and powers, making a public spectacle. He put these things to shame at the cross. It reminds me of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you know the book, cool. If not, get ready for story time. So, so there's this scene, Edmund betrays his family. He's one of the brothers. It's a group of four siblings. He betrays his family. And he betrays his family. He ends up back with Aslan. And the white witch, the antagonist of the story, comes. And she demands Edmund. She says, he's a traitor. He's mine. The law says he's mine. And so Aslan takes her aside. We're not told what they talk about. They come back. Aslan said, hey, took care of it. Edmund's staying. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, we won. You know, all the good guys are like, yeah, we won. And she tries to, like, say, no, I really won. And Aslan's like, be quiet. We have an agreement. Go away. And you're left, as a reader, you're left going like, wait, what, what happened? Did she win or did he not win? What's going on? Later, you find out in the next scene, Aslan traded his life for Edmund's. So Edmund was able to stay because Aslan agreed to be killed in his place. So she takes Aslan to the stone table, and the scene, it gets me every time. If you're a crier like me, and every time I read it, every time I watch it, they are ripping his hair out. They're mocking him. They're, they're, they're beating him. At, at one point, they say, oh, he's not a lion. He's a big cat. Oh, the mane was just a show. They shave his mane. They shave him bald. And, and they, they kill him on that stone table, Aslan. And two of the girls find him. They're weeping. They're heartbroken. The body disappears. And then at some point, the, the table breaks. The stone table breaks. And Aslan comes back in his, you know, in his full body, right, restored like new. And then he says this at the end of him explaining what had just happened to the girls. He says, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And so I, I, the writer there, and even the movie, did an incredible job of painting this truth. As Jesus hung there on the cross and people were spitting at him and ripping his beard out and stealing his clothes and going, hey, if he's the son of God, he should just get down from there. He was winning and they were digging their own grave. They had no idea that they were losing. Jesus won on the cross. It's amazing. It's amazing. Everybody should read Chronicles of Narnia. Verse 16. Um, um, We get here now to to the the end of, of this chapter. And this idea, he really drives the point home, right? Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by this. Don't be deceived by that. And then he says, let no one judge you. And and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, worshiping Uh, Worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, 
but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. A commentator said this, it would be preposterous indeed for those who had reaped the benefit of Christ's victory to put themselves voluntarily under the control of the powers which he conquered. Right? It doesn't make sense. If you think about it very basically, right, very simply, you may have dealt with this in your Christian life. Maybe you come from a background of legalism. Maybe you're still currently wrestling with some of these questions and issues. Just for a second, try to just kind of think objectively. If Jesus fulfilled all the law, if Jesus conquered everything that was against us, why would we go back to it? We're in a new covenant with Jesus. It just doesn't make sense. And and Paul and the Holy Spirit through Paul tells us why here. You know, I I said we would mention it, right? We mentioned already a shadow of things to come. All these things were a shadow. And there's this really beautiful picture here. The more I thought about it, I'm kind of a visual person, so I'm picturing this over and over again in my head. And that's the idea of a shadow is, is so gracious and so wonderful. God was shining his light of truth and life, the light of Jesus. He was shining it forward into time. And so we were seeing shadows, right? As we're walking along time, as the Jews are being created as a nation, as the laws are being given, everyone sees these shadows. Oh, man, this, we should do this. We should do this because the light is behind. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming to the world stage. And this light is behind, and this light is behind, and we're seeing these shadows. But now that Jesus is here, if you want to continue to look at the shadows, you would have to turn your back and look away from Jesus, You see, I have a shadow here on the platform from some of the front lights. The shadow is behind me. If I want to look at this shadow, I have to turn away from this light. And the more engaged I am with the shadow, the further I am from this light. I have to turn all the way around and completely ignore and turn my back to this source of light. So it's just so, when you think of it that way, when you look at the picture that God is painting, it's so, it's so, it grieves my heart when I've done it. God, that I would turn my back on Jesus, the source of light, the substance, it says, to look at these shadows. It it breaks my heart that I would do that. But we have those tendencies. You know, know, there's there's Jewish traditions and feasts and laws, and and I've seen it happen over and over again. You know, I want to start to do this. I want to start to do this. And what the Bible here is not saying is you can never participate. There's no value. It's evil. Stay away. That's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying... You can never force anyone to do it. Uh, You can never make it a law. You can never um, look down on others for doing it. That's what the Bible is saying here. I actually, with a group of friends for one year, we wanted to celebrate all the biblical feasts. It was super fun. We had a Passover Seder. We did, I think it's Shavuot, the Feast of um, Tents or Tabernacles. We had a barbecue in the backyard. We ate super not kosher, uh, but we had a barbecue in the backyard. And we're like, hey, kids, like, this is a Jewish feast, and here's a Bible verse. And we're reminded that our permanent home is in heaven. That's why we're eating outside today. Yay, okay, bedtime. Like, it was super chill. We didn't make it a law. We didn't walk around going, did you celebrate Shavuot this weekend? Like, no, like it doesn't matter. It's none of my business. Right? Like I did that for me and I really enjoyed it and, and we, it was temporary. We walked away from it. Now, if I started to tell my family, like, if we don't celebrate Shavuot, we're not Christian enough. Like, no, I'm wrong now. And somebody should like pray for me, right? And like pray with my wife or whatever if I did that. So you have to be careful. These things are beautiful. Enjoy them. Sabbath, right? If anyone, here's a very easy, like, argument to Sabbath. Don't argue with people and, like, start screaming, but rebuttal, maybe is a better word. If somebody tells you, oh, you have to keep Sabbath, Friday to to Saturday, or, oh, you have to keep Sabbath, you can keep Sabbath on Sunday, then I hope they're working six days a week, because that's what Sabbath is. You work six days a week, and you get one day off. 
So anybody here that likes the two-day weekend, don't play with Sabbath law, okay? Because you have to work six days a week. Now, I actually think that's a pretty good schedule, right? I have two days a week where I'm not in the office, where I'm off technically. I take one of those days and I try to do house projects. I try to work on that sixth day, work on house stuff, get errands done, get to the mechanic, do all the stuff that I can do while I'm in the office. So cool model. And God, I need to remember to rest one day a week and not, you know, get sick from never resting. Thank you, Lord, for that awesome model. But it's just not holding people to a law. And it's not thinking that you're holier because you do something or don't do something. Uh, needing to wrap up here, th there's a lot. I, I mean, I hope you guys will pray and, and, and continue to, to look at this. Um, the last thing I want to address is that phrase. Um, when it says, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. And you know, I've, I've seen this even recently. And again, I want to be very careful. Um, again, the, the summary here, what, what the Bible is saying here is that we think that if we just hold ourselves to these laws, to these systems, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. You know, if I never go to this part of town, if I never watch this movie, if I never get involved with these people, then I am certain that I'm going to be holy and righteous and I'm going to be the best Christian. It doesn't work that way. Or if you're in sin or if you're, 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 yeah, if you're in sin and you think, oh, as long as I put enough laws on myself, as long as I do enough things, then I can get out of this sin and then I can finally get righteous. That's the summary. Now, here's where even to this last minute here, I'm hesitating, but I think it's important. If you think that with this 12-step program or with this medication or with this therapy alone, I can solve this problem or free myself of this addiction or cure myself of this situation, that's one of the deceits that God is addressing here in this chapter. That is one of the lies that God is warning us against in this chapter. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle doesn't work. You can be by yourself in a room and you are craving for sin. Your fleshly nature Right? As you grow in the Lord, you're starving the flesh, you're feeding the spirit, so those cravings are less. But it do, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle doesn't work. Pastor Ken Graves says it this way. He says addicts, right, drug addicts, uh, addicts of different nature, they're very passionate, worshipful people. They're, they're just worshiping the wrong thing. They need to take that passion and energy and worship that they're putting into drugs and themselves or sexual morality, whatever it is, and then they need to take that passion and zeal and worship and direct it to God and place it in God. That's the difference. And so I just want to encourage you that, again, it's, it's a tough word because our culture and our society and even our churches have so given into this lie. I've seen it more than once. One of the other things that happens, and I know I'm getting very specific, but God loves you and God wants to free you and change you and conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. Remember, he wants to bless you abundantly with abundant life. One of the things I've seen over and over is that people, they change out their, their worldview, their biblical worldview for a therapy worldview. And everything in their life is looked at through a lens of therapy, Right? do not this, do this. I'm like this because of this. I trace it back to this. If I continue to do this, then that's gonna, and everything is framed by therapy and is viewed through therapy. Therapy is a tool, right? For example, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle drugs ever. Don't do drugs. 
That applies to drugs, right? It's not saying try everything. You got to taste it first. No, you don't. Don't do drugs, kids or adults. Don't do drugs, okay? So it's not, it's, it's more, again, it's, it more has to do with the way we look at our spiritual life, the way we look at the world around us. You cannot have a program or have a system or change out the view of grace and salvation in Jesus Christ for anything else. And that's one of the things, you talk about modern day heresies, you talk about things that we're dealing with in our lives and in churches now, it's that, that we frame things with other things than the Bible, programs and laws and, um, and, and different things like that. You know, we're, we're given plenty of imperatives, and the worship team can come forward. We're given plenty of imperatives, plenty of commands in the Bible, right? It's not that there's nothing to obey, or there's nothing to do, or, or you know, the don't judge me, right? We say that when we don't want people to, to, to call us out on stuff, right? No, it means, it's saying don't judge people on laws that you're making up, on traditions, right? We're supposed to help each other out. We're supposed to call each other out. Galatians chapter 6, right? Verse 1, um, if you see a brother overtaken in trespass, restore such a one. And then it says, being careful lest you be overtaken as well. So we're supposed to help each other. We're supposed to talk to each other, right? What was that thing we said in the beginning? Someone that they really pray for you, they really love you. They're not going to persuade you and trick you and convince you. They're going to say, hey, bro, sis, I love you. What's going on? You know, they're going to have that heart of love and of prayer. So I hope that something there in chapter two stuck out to you. I hope that you can see what you can guard against. And, you know, I'll leave you with this. There in verse 1, Paul said, um, you know, I've never seen you before. You've never seen me, right? He, he said that. Everybody remember verse 1, right? He, he said, uh, uh, has many have never seen my face? This is the heart of God. God is saying, you've never seen me before, but I agonize for you. I love you. I don't want you to be deceived. So I just pray that you would know that. Let's stand and pray and close in worship. There'll be pastors and elders up front to pray with you. Lord God, thank you so much for this day and, and just for your word. Um, God, I just pray. I pray that we would never let anything or anyone take us away from that simplicity in Jesus from the finished work of Christ on the cross. You said it is finished, Lord. There's nothing to add. There's nothing to invent, God. Everything we need is in Jesus. And we don't need anything more than Jesus. So God, please bring us back to that place, Lord. Keep us in that place, Lord. And if anyone here is not saved, God, if anyone here is stuck in the basic principles of the world or the philosophies of men, free them today, God. May they be saved and rooted in Christ and start their relationship and walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.